I'd like to welcome all of those who braved the elements to join us here this evening. It therefore is a special pleasure and privilege to have two very distinguished therapists who work day and night, literally around the clock, it seems, from the contacts that I have with them. Um, picking up the pieces of so many of these shattered lives and the realization and the assumption with which this, these sessions are um, based on is that the time to act is before the trouble begins. The lessons to be learned are those lessons of prevention and um, better um, developing, insulating, inspiring, guiding, helping uh, our children to grow, to grow well, to grow successfully, um, confidently before the dangers and difficulties which are all too prevalent uh, attack them and undermine uh, everything that they and we are trying to achieve for them. So we're very uh, privileged to introduce these two therapists, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Adler and Dr. Ben-Zion Sorotskin. Um, both have uh, not only distinguished themselves professionally, but also with their caring and sensitivity for these problems, uh, much beyond the, uh, the scope of their professional responsibilities. And for this, uh, the entire Jewish community is, uh, is a beneficiary and is certainly grateful. Good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to take part in another one of Priority One's educational initiatives. Rabbi Kohn has always been at the forefront of efforts to improve and enhance our community's educational services, and his dedication inspires me to do my small part to help out in one of his endeavors. Uh, I'll tr keep my uh, statements to a half hour, and then we'll have uh, time to answer questions. Rabbi Adler and myself. Uh, the topic I'm going to speak on today is the power of parenting. I choose this topic because I feel that as parents we often grossly underestimate the impact we have on our children's emotional lives and thus on their whole future happiness and success. I recently spoke to the parents of a 20-year-old patient and when I spoke to them about how hurt he is when he sees that they don't accept him for who he is and what he is and how rejected he feels, they were totally shocked that he even cares about what, he, about what they think. Certainly with teenagers, they often uh, have a, uh, uh, an exterior that uh, tries to show that as if they don't care, they can care less what we think, but I think we should not be fooled by that. And certainly, will for, parents will forever be the most important people in the child's emotional life. Now, as parents, we often hear conflicting messages from the experts. We're inundated with advice and warnings on how to deal with our children and how to provide them with a proper environment. And yet, when we hear the experts discuss the whole issue, the whole problem of children at risk, we're all told that can happen in the best of families. So it seems that how we treat them really doesn't make much of a difference. I recently a colleague of mine, a very well-respected 
therapists who I personally have heard speak very eloquently many times to parent groups and <clears throat> speaks very eloquently and passionately about how important it is and what an impact, how we deal with our children, what the long-range impact it has on their future lives. He wrote an article where he ten tangentially related to the issue of parenting and he said that it's very common and frequent for a child who grew up in a home where he was treated perfectly, the most wonderful of families, who treated him in the most wonderful way, and that he could very easily find success and happiness doing everything right, and nonetheless he chucks it all out, and he goes off the derech. He, he didn't say this could happen, he said it's a very frequent occurrence. So I met him at a simcha, and I said, I have a bone to pick with you. This is an amazing contradiction. You know, I think any parent knows that it isn't easy to be a good parent. And there's some days that you feel overwhelmed and overstressed, and the last thing in the world you want to do is be nice to your kids. So, okay, if it's very important, and it can have long-range impact, no, you make an effort. But if it don't make a difference, then why bother? I said, how does this jive with the many incredible lectures and speeches I've heard you give? To his credit, he agreed. Now, <clears throat> when the experts speak about this topic, you find there's almost an obsessive concern over the question of whom to blame. That seems to be a very important point. And it seems almost to be more important than the effort put into understanding the roots of the problem and finding the solution. We are told countless times how every word we say to a child could have a tremendous impact, and yet at the same time you hear many speeches these days about all chinuch problems come from the media and exposure to the culture. And it seems from these lectures and speeches and articles that the parent's only job is to protect the child from, 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 the, from the environment. And after that, our job is done. What we do inside the house doesn't seem to really make that much of a difference. Parents are variously criticized for being too lenient or for being too strict, depending which book you read. While at the same time, all the children's problems are attributed to chemical imbalances and genetic flukes. Parents are encouraged to take to courses and to listen to lectures on prevention, prevention of problems. And yet when the problems crop up, the politically correct expression is, you're not part of the problem, but you're part of the solution. So which is it? I think it's imperative and possible to be totally honest with parents while still being very respectful. How can we justify holding back information that could possibly help them better understand their children's problems? All parents love their children and sacrifice for them. And even if they sometimes do things that are harmful to them, it's certainly hardly ever with intention to hurt or harm. Or harm. So parents will forever be the most important, the most emotionally significant people in their children's lives. And if you doubt it, because very often when we speak about children with difficulties, we talk about problems with schools and with teachers, it depends who you like to bash, it could be schools or principals or friends. But if you think about this picture, if you have two kids in front of you, you have Ruven and Shimon. Ruven is very unhappy because he feels that his teacher picks on him, and the teacher doesn't like him, and the teacher is angry at him, and the teacher is disappointed in him. Then you have Shimon, who's also unhappy because he feels that his parents are angry at him, his parents rejection, reject him, and his parents are disappointed in him. Can you even compare their level of misery? It doesn't even, it's not even close. The major cause by far of emotional and behavioral problems among children and adolescents is deficiencies in the parent-child relationship. 
All other factors, while important, are secondary, in my opinion. When children feel alienated from or rejected by their parents, they either become depressed if they internalize their problems or drift away from their family's way of life if they externalize their problems. This was clearly expressed way back in 1977 in an article written by Rabbi Brofman. I want to quote just a few sentences from this article because I think this is, holds true today, just like in 1977. I know of crisis in every neighborhood and every subculture of the Orthodox community. The common denominator in all of these situations would seem to be a lack of communication and a growing hostility between parents and children. While this may be analyzed from many perspectives, the fundamental needs not being met in all these situations are those of understanding, respect, and too often the patience of parents toward children. Every child needs to be loved by his parents, and most important, to be accepted for what he is. And he ends with this sentence. This seems to be such a simple solution, yet how often this is overlooked. If this advice had been taken in 1977, we wouldn't be facing most of the problems we face today. And if we take that advice today, I don't think we would need these type of conferences in two decades from now. Now, very often, even if parents do not do the things that the Rabbi Adler mentioned and other ways of showing children acceptance, you might not notice the problem when they're young. Because since children, young children especially, are so incredibly dependent on their parents, any signs of alienation will not be apparent until later on in the teen years when you see the problems and then you see the alienation and you see the rebelliousness, but you should know that in all cases the seeds of this alienation were sown much earlier. What causes the alienation? I think that in our community we can be very proud of the fact that most parents are very involved in their children's lives. They're very concerned about their well-being. It's not so common that children are neglected in most ways. And there's certainly most parents are very concerned about their children's physical needs. If a child's sick, God forbid, you run to the best doctors. If they have academic problems, parents go into high gear, go speak to the teachers, get tutors if necessary. We're concerned about our children's religious behavior, make sure they're acting appropriately. But somehow, the emotional, a child's emotional life only becomes apparent, only becomes an issue when a problem crops up. Now, the major problems in parenting that lead to children's alienation is not faulty parenting techniques. I agree with Rabbi Adler that, you know, there's lists of techniques. You go home with this trick or that trick. You know, it, these things are not that very effective. In fact, studies, recent studies have shown that these type of parenting courses where you learn different techniques, how to deal with problem A or problem B, are not very effective. The problem usually lies in faulty attitudes and perceptions. For example, we know that criticism is the poison of relationships. And if you don't believe me, just think about your spouse. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, parents in today's day and age are extremely overcritical. And it is the result of faulty perception and expectations. Certainly, if you think that if a, if a child is acting in a way that's, if a child is misbehaving in a way that's normal for a child that way to, of that age to misbehave, but in your mind, this is totally out of the norm, then it's understandable why you'll be critical. Somebody once, there's a famous story of Yakov Kavnetsky, that somebody walked into his house and one of his children was climbing on the table. She said to him, don't you have to be mechanicha not to climb on the table? She said that a behavior that's normal for a child's age 
that a child grows out of, there's no, no reason to be mechanachim. He's going to grow out of it. You might want to take him off the table so he shouldn't get hurt, but, but it's not a din and chinuch. There's no need to be mechanach for something that a child will automatically grow out of. But sometimes parents, if they feel that this is like a horrible behavior, and if I don't stop at this instant, so when he's 24, he's going to be climbing on tables, so then you could understand why they're very critical. Likewise, many times parents perceive misbehavior as, as, as purposely malicious. Parents use expressions of child trying to be manipulative. They come up with some very horrible uh, explanations and understandings of the, of the child's intentions. Like he's purposely making my life miserable. If a parent feels that way, it's very understandable why they're going to be very critical. I've heard parents speak about learning disabled children and explain why they're not doing well in school because they're lazy. That's a very favorite explanation. Some parents are a little bit more sophisticated. The word lazy doesn't sound very scientific. So recently a parent, a mother told me about her daughter that she's a self-indulgent truant. That's somewhat, somewhat more sophisticated. Uh, a mother recently told me about her daughter who was in tremendous emotional pain for, because she's a dropout and she sees herself as a loser and she stays every day in bed till noon. And the mother's telling me she's enjoying the good life. Right? Some good life. So you can understand why she's very critical. Just the other day, a, a father called me to cancel his 16-year-old son's appointment. Because by mistake, he scheduled a dentist appointment the same hour. And the father was somewhat aggravated and resentful that he had to be the one making the call. He felt his son should cancel himself. So, incident, in, his, uh, in his statement about it, how upset he is about it, he mentioned that the reason why the son doesn't want to call me himself is because he's lazy. Which I thought was quite amazing. I, I, a kid has a cell phone. I'm on a speed dialing. I think he has to press two buttons to call me. He's called me many times in the past for all kinds of reasons. But the reason why he's not calling to make the, to cancel the appointment himself is because he's lazy. It's obviously the reason he didn't call because he feels a little bit intimidated, because it's a little bit embarrassing. I don't know if you ever had to call your doctor, especially if you had to, uh, you know, if you have to speak to the doctor himself or herself. You know, it's not so schmuck. It's not so comfortable to cancel an appointment in the last minute. So he was probably intimidated. And this was especially interesting because this very same father, about a month before this conversation, when I suggested that he call his son's principal, because his son was having some problems with the teacher, he goes, oh, no, I can't call a principal. I, I get very intimidated talking to authority figures. But the son, the reason why his son doesn't want to call me is because he's lazy. And since laziness is so often used as an explanation, let's consider for a moment if laziness is ever a reasonable explanation for a dysfunctional child, is it worth it for somebody to give up a successful and pride-enhancing career in learning or any academic endeavor in order to avoid exerting himself too much? Think about it. Picture this scene. You're going, you're deciding you're going with your friend to the city. You're standing on the subway platform, right? And the train is taking its time coming, so there's a very impatient crowd on the platform. So one very impatient young man decides to check if there's a train coming down the platform. So he's leaning way over there looking for a train and all of a sudden he slips and he falls on the, on the, on the tracks. Everybody gasps. And of course you expect him to, to try to scramble out, especially because all of a sudden you hear the rumble of the approaching train. But instead the guy's just sitting there. He's not moving. So you turn to your person, your friend, you say, I wonder why the guy isn't moving. And your friend says, well, he must be lazy. Right? And you think he's crazy. Yet we use this explanation for just as ridiculous situations, and we say that the reason why a child is messing up his life 
right? In other words, he really could. If he could, he could study. He could do well in school. He could have normal friends, right? But instead, he just decided for you know that a pleasant life is just too boring, and therefore he decided that I'd be lazy and I'll stay every day, every day in bed till twelve. Doesn't seem to be much of a sensible explanation. So why do we accept laziness as an explanation? I think the main reason is because that's what our parents told us when we didn't do things, when it didn't make sense. So we internalize that. And second of all, second reason is because our, very often our children do not share the, the details of their emotional life, so we have no idea why they don't do anything, why they don't do certain things. So we assume it must be laziness. Recently I saw a, a, a 16-year-old a 16-year-old boy who came to me, and the parents said, told me that uh, until he was about 13, he was a very good bacher. He was learning very well, he was very well behaved, everything was fine. Suddenly, the summer after he turned 13, after the summer, the next year, there was a sudden deterioration in his whole, in his, his academics, in his, in, his, uh, in his behavior, and nobody could understand it. So of course the the, the Rebbe spoke to the, you know the Rebbe spoke to him the parents spoke to him first they spoke to him nicely after a while they lost patience with him they spoke to him not so nicely some of the teachers were more understanding and sympathetic some were less but the common denominator between all the teachers and the and the and the principal and the parents was the reason why he suddenly stopped functioning the way he used to was because he suddenly became lazy. Why exactly suddenly became lazy wasn't clear, but clearly what other explanation of a kid who's capable, because he used to do so well, so he's always capable, you can't say he can do it because he used to do it, so what other possible explanation could there be other than the fact that he's lazy? Now, different teachers have different approaches to laziness. Some like to use the stick, some like to, you know, to be nicer about him, kinder, but eventually everybody lost patience with this kid, and, you know, they, he would get suspended and so on. Finally, after about three years, the mother realized that he's very depressed. He had a hard time getting out of bed and so on. She recognized the signs of depression. So she finally had a hard time talking to him. Parents were basically nice, decent people who really cared a lot for the child. And finally the mother had a hard time talking. The kid finally broke down and started crying. That the summer before this deterioration, he was molested by his counselor in camp. Of course, he never told his parents. Right? And after, because of that incident, he became involved with inappropriate behavior with other kids in this, with other boys in the yeshiva, and because of that he became depressed, and because of that uh, he, he felt guilty, and because of that he started hating himself, and because of that this whole thing happened, and this, all these three years everybody's telling him the reason for his behavior is because he's lazy. It's amazing, although he knew the truth, he believed it was because of his laziness also. Now the question is, why didn't he tell his parents? Because these are nice, wonderful people, his parents, and I'm sure if they would have known about it, they would have gotten him the appropriate help at the time, and it would have avoided three years of misery. So to answer that question, I'd like to make a point. That I feel that an unrecognized and quite subtle factor causing children tremendous emotional turmoil is the fear of disappointing their parents. The fear of not giving their parents nachas. Because everybody knows that's the purpose of life. Children are born in order to give their children the parents nachas. Everybody mitzvah hears that in every speech. Right? In my opinion, this is the major cause of, depress- of, of kids suffering from depression and kids at risk. What do I mean? Here, a few, about four weeks ago, I was sitting at a chasana, I was sitting next to a guy that I knew very slightly. So we were making chit-chat and talking, and he mentioned he has a son 
who learns, I think he was in 12th grade or first year of Big Smedrish, learns in a yeshiva out of town, a very respected yeshiva. I said, oh, how's your son doing? He says to me, I'm very disappointed in him. Yeah, I got nervous. Who knows what happened? I know he knew I was a psychologist. Maybe he was going to tell me about some horrible problem. I said, what's the matter? He says, you know, he comes home once every six weeks. And can you believe it? Over a whole weekend, he never opens a cipher. I said, well, how's he doing, you know, in yeshiva? You got any feedback from them? I thought maybe he suspected he's not learning a word, you know. He's, not, he's wasting his time in yeshiva. No, actually, I got an excellent report. I spoke to his rebbe. I spoke to his yeshiva. And I, he's doing great. He's a, he's a masterman. He's learning very well. He's a mensch. He, he's, he's more than a Brius. He's a wonderful kid. Yeah, everything's fine. But he comes home for a Shabbos, a Bukhar, Yeshiva Bukhar, that age, he comes home, doesn't open a safe for the whole Shabbos. So think to yourself, picture this kid. You have a kid who's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's doing it quite well. He's learning, he's a mensch, he has friends, everything. And he has to walk around feeling that he is a disappointment to his parents. Not that he disappointed his parents about a certain thing, because that's not how the father described it. Father said, I'm really very happy with him. It bothers me a little bit, he doesn't open his life. He's disappointed in him. So this kid has to feel that he's a disappointment to his parents. Actually, I told the father, you know, you should really thank Hashem every day that he doesn't open a cipher when he's home. Because most likely, he's in a very high-pressure yeshiva, he's probably exerting himself way beyond what he should in yeshiva, and if he wouldn't come home and chill out once a month or once in a month and a half, he'd probably burn out. But anyways, children have a feel that, that this young man, in fact, told me, the one who was molested, he told me the reason to tell his parents because he didn't want to cause them agmas nefesh. Well, cause an aggravation. So one of the serious side effects of children feeling that their purpose in life is to not to disappoint their parents, to give their parents nachas, is they don't tell their parents when something bad happens to them. Every time I deal with, it's very frequent when a kid comes to therapy, you find out he has a problem that's been below the surface for a few years. Sometimes it's an event that happens, sometimes it's just misery over things. And, he, and, and I always ask him, why didn't you tell your parents? And I would say nine out of ten, ten, years ago, the most common answer was my parents would beat me up. But Hashem, it's not such a common thing today, much less frequent. In recent years, I say nine out of ten times, the kid will tell me because I didn't want to cause them aggravation. I didn't want to disappoint them. And it's more common to happen among kids who are higher functioning and bringing so much nachas to their parents. They're the ones that are most at risk for this. In fact, this young man who was molested, he told me that the first signs that he wasn't doing well is he didn't do so well on his test. And he, was, he used to always get like 90s. Now he started fluctuating between 90s and 30s. But when he got to 30s, he never showed his parents the test. He didn't want to cause them aggravation. But Chaim Shmulevitz says that what makes a yosem a yosem, what makes an orphan an orphan, is not the fact that he doesn't have parents who can get him things. Because very often, the institutions that take care of orphans can afford to buy the, the orphan more things than his parents were able to afford to get him. What makes a yosem a yosem is the fact that he doesn't have parents who know and understand what he needs. And when a child can't tell his parents what's going on in his life, or doesn't feel comfortable to tell him that, then he's a functional yasam. And unfortunately, there are a lot of functional yasam today. Now many mechanchim attribute the alarming increase in problems among teens to the negative effects and impact of the media and other external influences. Now it's an obvious truth that the exposure to the media, there's very little good that we can that could be said about the popular culture, and it's obvious that the exposure to this, to the media and other agents of modern culture, 
can have, will have a very negative impact on a child's ruchnius and spiritual development. However, I think it's very doubtful, if at all possible, that such exposure in and itself can make it worthwhile for a child to abandon the only way of life he had ever known. I think about it makes as much sense as to think that, it, that the person won't leave the subway, to get out of the subway tracks because of laziness. And I think I can prove conclusively that it isn't true. If it was true, if it was exposure to the media that caused this problem, then there should be a tremendously higher number, percentage of kids, who go off the derech in those quote-unquote modern communities where there's a much higher exposure to the media and to culture than the more insular communities where there's hardly any exposure. I have not met one expert in the Jewish community who's involved with these problems who claims that there's any difference whatsoever in the statistics of kids going off the derech in these two very different communities. So I think that's conclusive proof that's absolutely ridiculous, with all due respect to people who may disagree, that that is the cause of the problem. It may be a cause of other problems, but it isn't this one. Now you might ask, what's the difference? Why make a big deal about that? Since everybody agrees that the media has a very negative impact on our morals and standards, so who cares if you have to stretch the truth a little bit in order to get people to try to abstain from it? It could be for the good. However, there's a tremendous danger, because when we focus on the wrong reasons, then we don't pay any attention to the real causes. We don't pay attention to our relationship with our children and the emotional environment that we create at home. We don't pay attention to the issues that Rabbi Adler mentioned, right? because we all believe that the whole problem is, as long as we protect him from the outside, then he'll be safe. And it brings to mind something, I just read this in the, in the Yediotah, in the Israeli newspaper this uh, past week. They had a story, a very tragic story, that there was the, 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 Israeli, the, the, the cabinet minister, the Israeli cabinet, in charge of environmental protection, uh, she very tragically developed uh, throat cancer. She can't speak anymore. And it seems that she was a very effective minister. It seems that she did an incredible good job in protecting the Israeli citizens, including herself, from the environmental pollution. There's only one problem. She was a chain smoker for many, many years. I thought it was very, besides her personal tragedy, uh, her unfortunate tragedy, I thought how ironic is that she did such an amazing job of protecting herself from the pollutants outside while she's pumping pollutants into her own throat. So I think if we do not, if we, uh, if we allow ourselves to believe that the whole problem is on the outside and the danger is coming from the outside, then we will neglect the more immediate environment which we create in the house. I want to make it very clear that what I'm saying is not an indictment of parents. As I, you know, I certainly know very well how difficult it is to be a good parent. Rather, it's a plea for parents to be aware of the tremendous power they have to prevent emotional distress in their children and how much power they have to help their children turn around if they already ha are in trouble. Accepting our central role and profound power and impact, both negative and positive, on our children's emotional lives can be very painful. However, the pain will be temporary while the gain will be internal. Thank you. Any questions for either myself or Rabbi Adler? Mr. Both touched on it. In accepting our children for who they are, perhaps we could benefit from elaboration. Like simply in situations where the parent has a certain standard or hope for the children in terms of the from the learning. Their behavior and ideas and not living up to it, 
um, for whatever reason that's where they are, we decided to have their own free will. Um, how can we be helpful to uh, accomplish that acceptance? Okay, I mean, that's, it's a good question. It comes up a lot. Um, as far as we have families and we have standards. And the question is, let's say they, the child is not living up to our standards. How do we deal with that? So I'd like to quote my Rosh Hashiva, the Novominska Rebbe, who has a line, which I think has a lot of, a lot of thought and a lot of impact. He says the following. He says, first make them whole, then make them from. Okay? And the idea is that if the child is not whole, the child doesn't feel that they're accepted or the issue that Dr. Zorotkin had addressed. It doesn't matter what, what they're going to do. They're not happy people. So to make them, and like I tell parents all the time, you know, they come to me, my kid's not putting on silk. He's not dominating. So what, what should I do about it? I tried everything. I even tried to bribe him. I said, he can have two tickets to a football game. I said, did you try to give him $1,000? Maybe he'll do it. I don't know. Try to give him $5,000, $10,000. Give him whatever it takes. But the point is, the kid's not doing it because he wants to do it. You can get a kid to do anything, but he's going to do it because you'll make him do it either forcefully, either because you're giving him the money, but he's not doing it because he wants to do it. Now, if the kid is not whole, and the kid is not happy, and he's not going to be religious because we want him, because that's what he or she wants, I think our focus has to be first on making this kid, he or she, to feel good about him or herself, make them whole. And then they will decide what they want to do. I mean, religion is a very wholesome thing. And anybody who knows what true religion is wants to be religious. But not because they're being paid to, not because their parents are making them religious, because they feel that's what they want to do. I don't think it's much different with the child. And even though this is a problem, because many children are not living up to our expectations, and as Dr. Sorokson pointed out, the disappointment that that creates for the parent has a lasting, if not a chronic effect on the child. But our understanding that we first have to make this child whole, then the child will make choices, which will probably be the right choices, I think will help the parent to be able to deal with this kind of dilemma. I'd like to also add to what Rabbi Adler said, that uh, there's a bit of a red herring here, because very often when parents ask the question, it's a very legitimate question. You'll tell me I should be accepting, I should be, the, be accepting of the fact that he's on drugs, or he doesn't put on film never, or whatever else that he's doing. Sounds like a pretty legitimate question. It's hard to expect the parent to be accepting of that. But in almost every single case of that nature, the original non-acceptance was m over much more minor issues. I've had parents who've been by me and told me about some major issues with their kids and they say to me, I'm not asking for that much. I'm not asking you should be a big tamachachem. I'm just asking they should daven every day or whatever it is, go to school. I say, yeah, but you used to tell them that in the beginning. Years ago you did tell them you expect that from him. It hardly, it's, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Again, for the same reasons I mentioned before, nobody's going to chuck everything, everything that can make his life happy and meaningful, just, you know, for the, because he's lazier for some other reason. There has to be an original, the original non-acceptance in almost all cases was over ridiculous, over the color of his shirt and the size of his yarmulke and the shape of his glasses. It hardly ever starts. This eventually it comes to these greater things and it grows into a larger problem, then it's, then, it becomes very difficult to be accepting and one has to work much harder. So if you don't want to work so hard, start being accepting way in the beginning and you'll avoid all these problems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, obviously situations like you're describing occur over years 
and, and the changes back is not going to occur overnight. But when, when you say make them whole again before uh, making them firm or whatever, so how do you make them whole? What specifically do you do? I'll tell you in brief. The line I tell parents when the situation is really bad, the line I tell them, maybe Rabbi will elaborate on it because I'm pretty sure we agree on this, but uh, the line I tell them is that at this point, you have to show your child that you care more about how he feels than how he behaves. Okay? That's, That's how you start making them whole again. That has to be more important to you, his happiness or lack thereof, than his particular behaviors. I mean, absolutely agree with that. Um, and even as far as his behavior, the point is, which I think you know, uh, Dr. Sorensen is referring to, the behavior that the child manifests right now is something that we have to accept he or she is doing his best. That's the level that he's at. Even though, yes, we could say he could do more, he could do less, but we have to accept he or she is doing his best. It's not he or she is lazy or not doing his best. With that attitude, we will be able to approach the child with those feelings that he's a great kid and then introduce the respect and the acceptance and the empowerment and some of the issues that were brought up uh, before. Questions? I have a question. Um, um, I, I really appreciate a lot of what you're saying. and It's been it's very insightful and helpful. And I'm also wondering how to approach situations where both parents disagree with their approach to their child, especially to the extent where um, many homes are already broken and there's a lot of animosity going back and forth. You know, mother's no good, your father's no good. child is already harmed by that buildup of, of hostility between the parents. How do they approach? Um, how does one help this family? The question, if I understand it, is if you have two parents that disagree on a, on a parenting approach. And as a result of that, there's been a lot of resentment and a lot of hostility that's been built up over the years. And you're saying that that differences in approach continues. Okay. Um, it is certainly not an uncommon problem, and it's a very difficult problem. The way, and there, there, are two, there are two aspects to it. One is, how does the child deal with it? How does the child understand it? And the other, how do the parents deal with that? Now, from the point of view of the child, in a situation like that, assuming, let's say, we cannot get the parents to agree or to find some middle ground, which is what we try. In other words, most parents will never be on the, exactly the same route. One parent will always be perhaps a little more stringent, the other, which is okay because there's enough of a middle ground. We're talking about a discrepancy which is so great and there's, let's say, no middle ground we have a real problem. So the first thing, of course, we try to get them to approach the middle and find certain areas that they agree on. The other area, as far as with the child, I will explain to the child that their parents have a disagreement. And I will tell the child that it's okay for parents to have disagreement. Okay? It's unfortunate when it affects the life of the child. But it's at the same time, for a child to have someone like myself, or Dr. Soroskin, that will support them to dealing with, let's say, parents that are maybe are dysfunctional. Because that is a dysfunctional parenting approach. If your approaches are so disparate and so different, you're not providing the healthiest kind of environment. And the kid has to know that. You know, it's not his fault. I'm not even blaming the parents. But he has to know that he is being presented with a very confusing, unhealthy parenting situation. 
and myself or whoever his therapist is will do whatever we can to support him to deal with that and if possible of course to deal with the parents I'd like to add something to that that uh, one version of that problem is let's say um, you know because therapists very often emphasize the importance of a united front right so sometimes when one of the two cup of the couple either you know you know uh, let's say is being abusive and the other one let's say well, you know the other spouse you know is very unhappy about it but feels that the shalom bias is so important that you know they will so go along with it in order not to cause a disharmony between the two. I think it's a very big mistake, my own personal opinion, because I think it wouldn't be much different if, if a, uh, a you know a religious couple, if one of the spouse would tell the kid to be mechal Shabbos, the other kid, the other spouse won't say, oh well, listen, shalom bayis, so we'll just go along with it. They would put their foot down on that. And I think certainly saving a child from abuse is as important as keeping Shabbos. And if I would say there, that would be something worth fighting about. You know, otherwise, obviously, like Rabbi Adler says, you know, if the parents felt the responsibility of providing the child with a, you know, somewhat harmonious home, obviously it behooves them to, to, to try to work it out with some professional or, you know, with some guidance to try to build to present that. You had a question back there? Uh, you had mentioned that uh, the child feels he can't go to the parent, mm-hmm. that uh, the parent will feel he's a failure. Mm-hmm. So how do you make an environment... No, 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 I didn't say that. I, that's so much of... That's one possibility. What I actually say, said that the fa- the, there will be... This, oh, I guess the same thing. There will be disappointed over the fact that he's a failure. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. In an environment where the child won't feel that he's letting the parent down, don't children feel inherently that they have to be look, looked up to as if they're like a perfect person? Well, I would say like this. Every child... Every human being is probably born with a need of feeling special, right? Now, now, if, as a child, the way you feel special is because you're special to your parents. You know, the, the, the Chayyadim says that to be mekayim the mitzvah of kibud aveim in its in its higher level, it's not enough just to go through the things that brought down the shulchan to feed them and bring them things. You have to think of them as special people. So I heard once from Atzeret Salman asked, you know, what if they're not special people? What if they're very simple folk? You know, we're supposed to be delusional and think that they're famous when they're not. So he said, the, the explanation is that they can be very special to you. So I added to what he said, and I said that works much easier if they did the same thing for you. You know, if you as a child, they looked at you for being special, not because you're on the honor roll, not because you're the best player on the team, not because you sang in the school, in the school choir, but just because you're theirs, then you'll do the same thing to them, because then indeed they'll be very special parents to you. And so that's how you get the feeling of specialness. You know, every child wants to feel special, but infants do it all the time. You go into you know into maternity ward, every parent thinks their kids are the most wonderful, brilliant, cutest thing in the world, and they didn't do a thing. But usually that goes away very quickly. <laughs> the stakes get much higher. So uh, you know, but if if that indeed, then I think then the child would realize because there's a certain frame of mind. I, I spoke before about uh, you know attitudes. The fact is, many parents indeed believe, it's not just, you know, we think, they really believe that, that the child's job in life is to make them happy and to bring them nachas, right? And therefore, the child feels that, that that's his job, so if he, of course he's going to disappoint them. If the parent's attitude is that, no, it's their job to make the child, child happy, then the child will pick it up and realize if he has a problem, of course he's going to go to his parents and tell them. Just to add one component, as I was referring to before, if you have an environment where a kid feels he can express himself and he doesn't have to agree with his parents, even at a young age, I find those kids are much more comfortable 
with being who they are. And they don't feel this kind of pressure because they know their parents respect them because they're different, because they're not doing the same thing. And, you know, it's not always every parent that can do it, but it can be done. If at a young age, a parent knows that he doesn't have to worry about what he says, you know, he's not going to be criticized, he's not going to be torn apart, you'll have a kid who will feel that that, uh, that ability uh, to accept himself so much more easy. And then to express himself if there is a problem because he won't be afraid that the parent will reject that. I, I just said, you know, there was a parent, there was actually a story that happened about two, 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 three years ago. I, it, was a, it was shocking. I thought I was beyond being shocked, but I was. I think to the mother, and I just made a statement. I said, it's very sad that your son wasn't comfortable enough to tell you about this problem. I don't remember what the problem was. You know, three years or four years ago when it started because then it would have been so much easier to help him. And her answer was, and telling you exactly the truth, the way it happened, not exaggerating, she says, what? What kind of what kind of boy who has kibbutz avayim would tell his mother something that would cause her aggravation? And she was a normal person. It wasn't somebody who was obviously something wrong with her. And she was like a regular normal everyday person. And I said, so I thought I misheard there. And I said, uh, I said you mean to say you would have rather not have no? <laughs> so that, what kind of kid does that? Tells his parents things that cause him aggravation. Yeah. I hope that was an extreme case. Physical abuse, molestation, or this type of thing, where a parent almost seems like delusional. And what it seems from like these speeches that it could happen from like a more subtle form, let's say criticisms, lack of acceptance. Can you explain more how those like I guess more subtle things, what message they create in the child that that causes these types of problems? Essentially, <clears throat> as we were saying before, it, it creates a child that doesn't feel good about himself. Okay. So a child who doesn't feel good about himself, what's going to happen? Okay, let's take a typical scenario, which too often happens today. You have a child, let's say, from uh, let's say a relatively yeshivish family, you know, where uh, the kid knows, whether it's expressed directly or subtly, he knows what his parents want from him. He knows that his siblings, you know, are sitting and learning. He knows that uh, his, his sisters married people that are sitting and learning. And here he is. He's a great kid. He knows deep down, he's not going to sit in the base matters seven hours a day, twelve hours a day. It's not going to happen. But he knows that he can do a lot of things, you know. So he's got this problem now. now what do I do? On the one hand, if I'm going to do what I really want to do, which maybe is to go to Yeshiva a couple of hours, maybe to go to school, maybe to, to get a job, which would make me feel good. Maybe I want to go to a movie once in a while. I don't know. It's going to, it's going to destroy my parents. So I can't do that. Now, to, what, to do what my parents want me to do, I can't sit for 12 hours a day. So the kid doesn't feel good about himself. So what, what does he do? Where does he end up? He's got to do something. The kid is in pain. He's in emotional pain. So it is a shock to us that what do we do when we're in pain? We look for a painkiller. We go to a doctor. These kids don't have a doctor. They can't talk to their parents. They have no one that they can talk to. They go to the street. They find a painkiller. It's called drugs. It's called alcohol. It's called pornography. Whatever the painkiller might be. So what happened is, you had a kid who was a great kid, and instead of the parent making this kid feel that he's the greatest gift to mankind, even though he's not going to learn eight hours a day, the kid feels like he's a total failure, and then goes to the street. I just said, you remind me of a, a very uh, glaring example of that. I once saw a young man uh, who had come back from Israel. He was very depressed. He was like practically dysfunctional. Couldn't get his act together. And he told me when he was in through elementary school and high school, he came from out of town, the town where he grew up in. He was a, considered a decent student, well, an 80, 85 student, did well, no particular problem. 
And it really, was high, and there was not, nothing glaring that happened in his background, his home. Like, there was no physical abuse or even outright emotional abuse or anything that could be, you could put your fingers on. It took me a while to figure out what was going on. Eventually, going back in his memories, he remembered that Mike Shabbos, he used to go and play basketball with his friends. And he always remembered, he, he, he tuned into this because he remember, even today when he puts on the t-shirt to go play ball, he has like a very uncomfortable feeling. And we try to trace it back and then he remind, remind himself that's what used to happen to Shabbos when he'd go, you know, he'd go home to play basketball, he'd go to get his clothes and he'd put on his t-shirt and sneakers and he'd walk, he always had a terrible feeling. I said, why? Did your parents criticize you or tell you something? No, nobody ever said a word. After a while, he said, tells me, he knew his father couldn't stand it. Like, why did he have to waste so many hours on a Mike Shabbos to play? Anyways, I had an opportunity to speak to his father by phone. He once called or this, and I said to him, tell me, what used to happen when your son used to go play basketball on Shabbos? So he got a little defense. He said, I never said a word. I never, I said, no, he never said you did. He told me you never criticized him or said a Just tell me how you felt about it. He says, okay, enough. I got to tell you the truth. I thought, I got, I got us four hours playing basketball. My God, you know, you know, you can play for half an hour. You can have a harusa like the Shabbos, you know. And the kid picked it up. It had like an incredible impact on him. He just could never be comfortable having fun, even in an appropriate in an appropriate way. Touching on these points, but what happens if a kid comes home mm-hmm. and he, he decides that every all of a sudden every hour today he wants to go on to. Uh, uh, a computer game, or and he tells you, I want to watch TV, and I say, this is not a TV house, and he says, I should be able to do it, uh, all the kids in my class uh, do it, this is not normal, uh, the house is not normal, uh, you know, this is ridiculous, uh, this is the way I am, and uh, you know, he tells you, and he goes on and on, like that. And, and all he wants to do is, is slap off and go, what do you, do you go with that, and you say, okay, Again, the seeds of that problem, even if it seems to be very sudden, you know, until a certain point, everything seems to be normal, and all of a sudden there's dramatic change. First thing you have to realize is that the things were not right before, so maybe he held it in, didn't say it, things were bothering him. So you're not dealing with a regular normal situation. It's probably better not to fight those things, because you're not going to get... The, it's, you know, any idea is only as good or as bad as what the other options are. Realistic option. So, what is the other alternative option? Getting into World War Three? I don't know. Uh, you can't, you can't come, come on and change the whole of the entire house. He, for you himself. Know, all, you, all, you, all uh, Do you know they, something? They should, they yeah. should have to yeah. see yeah. that and then take his path. You know. So, as I told one fellow that I, whose son at one point had gone off the dark completely, wasn't you know going to keep shops or anything. And he didn't want to fight with it. He realized I had spoken to him about it, and he spoke to one of the Gzayim who told him, you know, don't get into a fight about it. It's not worth it. He gave him a room in the basement. He did his own thing in the basement, away from the other kids. He just has to listen. You, you know, you do your thing. I respect it. I realize whatever you're going through, you know. But I appreciate if you respect also our space upstairs. You know, if you come upstairs, and then it worked pretty decently. And eventually, two years down the road, you know, things went back, and he came back, happily married now to a nice from girl now. But there's no. What is the alternative? Have a constant battle? Doesn't work. You know? This is the only alternative. It, you, it, the alternative is to embrace the child. You know, you don't have to claim that you're happy with what he's doing because he wouldn't believe you anyways. You know, then it's not the point. But say that you understand that, as, as Rabbi Adler said before, you realize that right now he's doing the best he can. You might not understand exactly why. You may not understand exactly why it's difficult for him. And especially, I think the most important ingredient is if you take responsibility for your part. 
Now, if the parent says, look, I may have done something to hurt you, obviously you're not a happy kid, something was wrong here, I obviously missed the signals, you know, tell me what it is, what can I do not to make you happy? Yeah, I mean, I basically agree, I think, I think to shower this kid with love, I mean, because that's, that's what you can do, and that's, that's telling him that you're accepting him in spite of what he's doing, I mean, I have a number of, of, uh, of situations over the years, and these are parents, some were Sheshiva, some were Menalim, where, as, as Dr. Srotskin said, they would, the kid would be Machala Shabbos in their own room, and, I mean, these are tremendous people. I, I thought they were tremendous people because they, they realized that the choice is I can throw my kid out or I can love him. And they made it, they made, and they probably asked other people, they made a decision is right now it's more important for me to feel that I love my kid. I'm not, you know, the parent is not sanctioning Chilo Shabbos. I'm not saying my house should, is, a, is a house of Chilo Shabbos. No, my house is, there's no Chilo Shabbos. But this child right now, if this kid would be on, a, on a, is, is, is ill and a life-saving device, I mean, you're going to say no. Chilo Shabbos, I mean, this, this kid is, it's a question about Salas Nefashos. I mean, you, you want to save this kid's life, you know, and you ask a child and you, and you, and the kid knows what Chilo Shabbos is. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing to me nowadays, which, you know, I always make this comment. When I grew up, you know, there would have, you would have bums and not bums, you know, the kids that were slacking off. I never heard of the bums being Mechal Shabbos. I never heard of them going to McDonald's. Nowadays, we have from kids, from good homes, and they're out there, and they're Mechal Shabbos, and they're eating at McDonald's. Why? It's because they hate God more? No, they don't hate God anymore. That's the way the kid right now is expressing what's going on inside of them. And maybe a couple of years ago it was, I don't know, he, he, he'd smoke cigarettes. And maybe it was because a couple of years ago he wouldn't wear a three-piece suit to shul. Nowadays, unfortunately, and it's, you know, not the kid's fault, but that's society, he goes to Chilo Shabbos. But it's not because Chilo Shabbos means anything more to him than, than going to a movie on a Wednesday night. It's his way of showing who he is. If I could add something, just that I think um, also you have to keep in mind not to give up on the power of influence on that child, oftentimes that the parent cannot have. The parent is not having it. And if the school hasn't been successful in bringing that child to where you expect it to be, then obviously the school is not doing it. But I wouldn't give up on the possibility of some outside influence being able to influence that child. One of the things that I find most effective is a mentor, if you're talking about a boy, Shiva Bochel, like some of these guys sitting here, who is close, somewhat close in age, uh, with it in terms of what this kid is interested in society, knows what's going on, yet as more stable, mature, uh, and, um, you know, a powerful influence in their life, can really gradually start to influence the values and the, the interests of that child. Whereas the parent in the school hadn't succeeded. So, despite any type of psychological advice, I think you can't give up on the positive influence. And just because you, the, the parent and the school, hasn't been successful, that doesn't mean that there are others out there. It's interesting that, that, I don't know if years ago it was so much different. There's a story that's brought printed from Chazanish that he, he had a son, uh, no, no, he, somebody had a son who, who uh, when, you know, became a Machal Shabbos with Fahasia, and he asked his father for a car. I find amazing in those years. I, don't, I think there were four people in there, so I had cars then. So I, I don't know where this lady was in there, so he was somewhere else. But he asked for a car, and his father agreed. He said, I'll get you a car with only one condition. You don't drive this car on Shabbat. He didn't say you shouldn't drive on Shabbat, not that car. Sounds pretty reasonable. He's buying him the car. He should be able to make such a condition. Of course, the kid totally rejected that idea and caused further conflict. 
And the Chazaynish heard, it doesn't even say yes to Chazaynish, it says the Chazaynish heard the story and sent a message to the father that it could die for him to buy the child the car without any condition. This is printed in the Masayish, it was later on printed in the Jewish Observer. This is a story. He said, because then you'll have influence on him. You know, if he feels that you're trying to help him, trying to make him happy, then you'll have influence on him. What happens if you do what you say, mm-hmm. and the kid doesn't follow his side of the bargain? There is no other side. It's a one side. There is not two sides. There's no contract here. No. Oh, that, that. Yeah. You'd be surprised. It is so powerful. It hardly ever happens. It hardly ever happens. Because to a child, the fact that you're willing to go so far to try to make him happy and to accommodate him is such a powerful statement. And usually contradicts everything else the parents did from the previous so it's, it's quite a dramatic change and the particular kid I remember it would at times come upstairs without his yarmulke he'd forget and his father would remind him nicely and he would go down and get it you know it wasn't 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 as difficult as it seemed yeah We send our kids to school, and the school teaches the child whatever they teach him, whether we like it or not, but that's the school we send them to. And then the child does, commits the crime of being a good student and listening to his teachers and rebellion, and then we're unhappy with what he wants to do. It's not very fair. But if you know your child, you know he has certain developmental needs. Not everybody, you know, that's, that's the parents, usually very often the parent's agenda. And what's very interesting, again, if the parent is a little bit flexible and is not so rigid, it's usually easier to come to some sort of agreement. You know, it's usually in the beginning there's a tremendous negative reaction to this idea that the yeshiva is deciding, or the school is deciding what your child or some guy in there, Israel who got hold of your kid, you know, is deciding for you what he should be doing. And it's very normal for parents to feel very resentful over that. And they get over to these power struggles and that usually has the exact opposite effect. It just makes the kid feel further away from you and drift even further apart from whatever whatever way of life that you choose. And I find that if the parents are a little bit more flexible and 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 you know and, and go along, because what happens like this in yeshivas where they promote only learning. So then when the, you know so then the, the parents want them to go to college. And then in the yeshivas where they want the kids you know where they where they promote more secular education. So then the parents are upset why the kid is learning. Somehow the kids can't please the parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say uh, in response to what you were talking about for the, the child you have one child uh, it's very difficult like that your example Rabbi Adam before about if you treat the child as if he's a relative that came to stay with you right. makes it much easier to say you know what I'm going to give you a separate room right. uh, and, and you'll give him the space right. thank you <laughs> your, your story reminds me that kid once told me that his father was a Rebbe in Yeshiva. And the kids that he taught were kids, some of them were sort of uh, in, a gray, in a gray area where they were holding, on, on sort of on the edge. And his father once, in, his father was very strict with him. His father once invited four students to spend Shabbos by him. 
And after Shabbos, the father says, oh, would you guys want the car? You know, or maybe you want to go bowling or such a movie? I don't know, whatever. And the kids went out of his mind. It was such a contrast in his own home between how... And every time Rabbi Adler says, I hear that story from him, it's like so beautiful. Like, he just was a totally different way how he's treating his kids and his students. It's shocking. Yes? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the three things I spoke about respect him, give him a lot of respect, and uh, love him to death. You know, give him a lot of love, um, make them feel that you know they can do their own thing, they can take choices. Uh, we're not imposing on them what we think is right. Uh, they can feel good about themselves. And, and give them that power. You know, if a, if a kid has a problem, and uh, it could be an academic problem, it could be a social problem. You know, there's so much, I mean, the beauty of it, you know, as, as Dr. Sorosky keeps on reiterating, if, if you start things right, they, they work. You know, it's like I'm saying, it's, it's really not that difficult. You have the basic ingredients. I, I don't care if the kid has ADD, ODD, learning disability, dyslexia. I mean, kids may have that. It, it doesn't matter. The kid has a self and feels good about himself, and he knows that the parents there are his biggest cheering squad, and they're behind him, the kid's going to do okay. The kid could be a, a brilliant kid, but feels whatever he's doing, he's hurting, disappointing his parents, he'll never make it. Because he'll feel like a disappointment. You know, you said about respect, I saw a quote from the Chazanish, he says that our children need our respect much more than our love. I think if somebody asks about criticism, I think, you know, when, when a child's criticized a lot, then that drives a child to be perfectionistic, to try to be better than everyone else, um, because uh, that's the only way he can uh, sort of recover from the shame of, 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 of being criticized. If he's so terrible, then, then this is one way he can recover from that or, or to undo that bad feeling is by doing things perfectly. And again, the, same, the problem here is a lot of times, I think parents and I think a lot of teachers also don't realize there's anything wrong with it. A, 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 a youngster I was seeing told his mother, we were meeting together, myself and this, uh, I think he was 19 years old and, and his mother, and he told his mother, you know, I just realized now, after he's been in therapy for a while, that I never in my life, even once, ever did anything for its own sake, or anything for my sake. Everything I did was only to win your approval. And the mother, who's an educator, quite well known, she said, yeah, what's wrong with that? I, I'm not, I'm kid you not. So what's wrong with that? Because it seems to work very well, because she, he was, for, until he got depressed, he was like one of the top guys in the school. So she thought it was wonderful. So that's what drives a kid. And he said that he, he, he had it, in fact, he, he finally, he, he went into severe depression when another new kid came into the school who was like slightly better than him. And that just killed him. He just went off the deep end. And he, he reminded me that his father once told him during his glory days, when he was doing real well, his father told him, if you keep this up, you'll be better than everybody else in your school. That was like the whole point of the whole thing. It wasn't if you keep this up, you'll do, you'll excel, you'll be successful, you'll, 
you know, make Hashem happy, I don't know, whatever, anything else. But this was the point, you'll be better than anybody else. Yes, Yes. 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 My experience has been the contrary. Okay. As soon as a friend or neighbor senses that there's a problem, they distance themselves as far as possible. Right, right. It's it's true. Probably most people uh, might react like that. But th- this is the, the change that I've noticed in recent years. And perhaps because of the uh, the, the attempts to educate people more, um, I find that people are much more concerned and they're trying to do it in a way where they don't want to avoid it. Because pe- why do people avoid it? It's not because they, they don't want to help. They, they, they don't want to feel that they're prying. They don't want the other person to feel that you know, they're, they're intruding, that they're invading their privacy. But because of education, because people know that there are resources out there, and especially in this community, there's a tremendous facet network, there is a sensitivity to understand that it could be that there maybe is something that we could do. And I think it's so important. And, I, and I, I very much disagree with that approach. I see it very often. I mean, I always get, you know, I, I, I'm appalled sometimes. A, a family is, let's say, having a marital conflict. And let's say, God forbid, they even think about divorce. All of a sudden, their friends step back. Well, I don't get involved. Get involved. Find out what's going on. I mean, when, when somebody's going through a situation like that, it's the most alienating experience. And we're not telling you, tell them what to do, but... Embrace these people. Talk to them. See if there's something that you can do. Sometimes these people are, are so confused and they're so hurt and they're so resentful inside they don't know where to turn. And if a friend comes, not because they want to intrude, not because they're inquisitive, because they're good people and they want to care and they want to do something about it, I think we have much more of an obligation. I think we should do much more of that. Because, I mean, listen, that, that's what we're here for. You know, we're, we're little deities. That's our job, you know. If in a couple of few years that we're on this planet, we can touch a person's life, you know, we, we've done it. So, so, I, I, I said, I said, I don't know, maybe I didn't say it. Uh, maybe I, I neglected to say it. It's a good point. There is such a thing as laziness. I'll tell you where it would make sense. I, I, I didn't bring out this point. Thank, thank you for bringing it up. So let's say, let's say you, have a, you find out you're, he's a teacher or a parent. You find out that you're a kid. Instead of doing his homework, he copied it off another kid. That could be laziness. He thought he'd get away with it. Instead of spending an hour doing his homework, he spent five minutes copying it off to the other person. That, I'm saying there are times when it makes sense because, you know, you, you figure you'd get away with it and you wouldn't have to work so hard. If a, if a guy, Ben Azmanin, instead of getting up for the 8 o'clock when he sleeps till 11, because he's lazy, you know, he has to have a little bit more so even Ben Azmanin, you have to get, get to shul for a minion. But if a guy is sleeping every day till 12 o'clock, I'll talk about in the extreme case when somebody's dysfunctional, so then laziness makes absolutely no sense. If, if you find a homeless guy who has an M, has an has engineering degree from MIT, right, it's not likely that the reason why he's living on the street is because he's lazy. Yeah. Not worth what I didn't hear what you said. You can experiment. You could try encouraging him to do more and see what happens. If he does more, then it's probably a good idea. If he starts doing less, then it's probably not a good idea. And, and no, it, it sounds pretty simplistic. But I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many times this happens. It's just, you know, a parent calls me up. 
a problem with you know, kids, whatever it is. Should I wake him up in the morning? I said, I say, why? What's the problem? He never gets up. He sleeps every day till twelve. I say, well, how long is this problem going on? Said, about two years. I said, well, you know, does he ever wake up when you wake him up? No, we just end up fighting. So you, you, what do you, you know, you, know, you still want to know if I think it's a good idea that you wake him up. So you know, of course, kids do need encouragement, and and sometimes you know, pushing a child a little bit could could, but very often. People are still pushing when it hasn't really worked in the last 400 times you tried it, so it's probably, or, you know, it's probably not a good idea. The, the, you know, we say that one of the memchas dvarim shatayim nixon vahem is, is being samech b'chalkai. Right? You should be happy with your lot. Most people assume it's only going on, on, on mundane matters, right? But on spiritual matters, we would think a person should better not be happy with himself because he won't want to grow. The Tzvasem says that it goes on ruchniyas too. Right? And it's not, it's not a steer to, it's not a contradiction to the idea of a person wanting to strive. Although some people think that if you compliment a child for his achievement, he won't want to do anymore. I'm not sure exactly where that idea comes from, because every kid I know who loves to play basketball and enjoys it plays more basketball, not less. For some reason we have this incredible fear that if you'll, the child will be happy with how much he's doing and things that are important to us, he would immediately stop doing anymore. 